Day in 1973, the Rolling Stones went to number one with their one good song. But what a song it is! I mean, I'm no Rolling Stones hater. It's a towering achievement. Great guitar, heartfelt lyrics. The big rumor about this song is that it was written about David Bowie's wife, Angela, who wrote in her, her autobiography that she once walked in on Bowie and Mick Jagger in bed together. A story that Jagger denies. But who knows the truth? It's a rare ballad for the Stones. And this one was from Goat's Head Soup. And it is an absolutely stunner of a song, isn't it, Wade Jackson? Love the Stones. Oh, love you, the Stones. Do you like the Stones? I do. I do. I grew up on this. Yep. I can remember going in, living in Pukekohe, going in, uh, jumping out of the car to go pick up uh, for my brother the um, Rolling Stones tattoo you out the, the, the vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're still rocking. They're still rocking. Yeah, I was they're still rocking. I was visiting my cousin in Christchurch um, over the weekend, and she actually saw them when she was in London, I think, recently. Like, they are eternal. I mean, how old are they now? Well, the, well, we lost Charlie Getting Watts. On. We lost the drummer this yeah. year, didn't we? This year, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, no, they're, they're um, beautiful. They, beautiful they epitomise Rolling Stones. They're still rolling. They're still rolling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, now, uh, thank you so much for all your feedback, big feedback this afternoon, uh, specifically road cones, but also groundswell. We will talk about that uh, tomorrow. We have Wade Jackson and Sarah Sparks, wonderful panel, although our wonderful 83-year-old fraternity, Wade, they're not happy with you. No, no, I'm sure they're not. Not happy. <laughs> I tell that male, um, the, tell that man, uh, I am 83 and I'm not in danger to him or any other motorist. He needs to, whatever his name is, needs to open his eyes and see what the <laughs> 80s can look like if we didn't spend your life in Auckland traffic. So I'm just, you, you're put to, on notice, you're put on notice, Wade. To be honest, that comment you're, was purely for my mother-in-law who's listening, who's 80, turning 82 uh, in a couple of weeks. That was purely for her benefit. <laughs> Wade Jackson, Sarah Marks with me uh, this afternoon. National is proposing a social investment fund as an election policy, saying it'll not help, saying, sorry, it'll help in identifying and funding social programs that work. National's finance spokesperson Nicola Willis raised the prospect of having private capital invested into the fund as well as taxpayer funding. Social investment as a concept originated under former finance minister Bill English as a targeted approach to welfare targeted by drawing on really granular government data to assist those in need. Critics say um, it's a slippery slope to privatisation. The social investment idea is used quite a bit overseas, but who better to ask than one of New Zealand's largest social service providers? Who are they? The Salvation Army. With us is Ian Hudson, the Director of the Social Policy and Parliamentary Unit. Ian, kia ora. Kia ora. So targeting those most in need, I mean, 
Is that a better way to spend funds and deliver good outcomes? Well, uh, I think it has some merits. Um, the, the central idea of data and analysis and looking at uh, programs that work, uh, what the real need is, where the need is, it is something that uh, has some real merit. And so in one sense, I guess my answer is a partial yes to it, but there's also caution with that because um, sometimes it can be a way of abdicating the government's role uh, if it's done in the wrong kind of way. And also sometimes people can focus on the easy data, the quick fix short term rather than the wider uh, more complex and you know intractable right. issues that we have. So that's a kind of a yes and a no. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, yeah. And I suppose what data that you look at, and uh, I mean, there's now a wealth of data, but uh, one of those perhaps not concerns or fish hooks, but allowing wealthy New Zealanders, philanthropists and charities to come into the social welfare system to support as an adjunct. What do you make of that move? Um, not to, not to, I think that um, philanthropy of that sort is something that should, if it comes in at all, should be rather more peripheral, not, not uh, in a way it, it begins to abdicate, I think, the government's um, role if it gets, gets too far into the centre of things. There's another aspect to it that I do have concerns about, or we have concerns about, and that is in relation to the fact that it becomes a focus on investing on individuals, which we need to do, but um, sometimes avoiding the inv social investment we need to make. In other words, it's like an, an efficient ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and while avoiding putting a decent social investment into the um, fence at the top. So... Uh, are things like ensuring people have adequate incomes, that the housing is up to, uh, you know, affordable housing and health and education. If we if we resist investing, and there seems to be a crying need for some of that at the moment, if we resist doing that and instead focus on individuals, uh, we we miss the opportunity to to, to put the fence up. Sarah, how do you see this? Uh, it's quite a complex uh, um, uh, issue, this, but that idea of allowing philanthropy to come into the social welfare system as an example. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say no. I think it's a, it, it's progression. I, I believe, though, that there needs to be transparency. There needs to be a prioritisation in terms of where the money is used. Uh, and I'm definitely one for early intervention programs. Um, you know, let's face it, it can't. It, everything can't rest. 100% on the government's shoulders because, you know, the early intervention programs are happening out in the community. I think it's very responsible, those that have much, much as expected. You know, if they can put money into helping their, their fellow citizen, that is a good thing. It's just how it works. So, you know, I, I agree with 
what our kōrero has been thus far. But look, you know, um, one thing I can say about the former finance minister, Bill English, and I'm non-partisan, but he was 100% behind funnel order, right? And um, and that works, and that is about early intervention. If you're looking at social impact studies, I suggest that you jump on the website for Funnel Order Commissioning Agency because there are social impact reports mm-hmm. in quantum. It happens, it can be measured, so there, it's a case of working collaboratively together, private sector, public sector, is what okay. I think. Ian? Yes, I agree with that. I think there is definitely a role for philanthropy to be involved in that and how you go about doing that. Um, and, and what, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your name, what you Sarah. said. Yeah. yeah, I agree with uh, that kind of, it's a mixed approach. I think we need to do that and involve philanthropy. And in clo- what we're really looking to do is encourage innovation. That's one aspect of it. I don't think it should just be the private sector or NGOs, that innovation can still happen within government as well, and if we use the data in the right kind of way. Okay, Wade, what's your angle? Oh, I've got quite a different angle. I'm going to take a leaf out of uh, the Dutch historian Rutger Bregman's one when he spoke at the World Davis Economic Forum, which is simply, stop talking about philanthropy and so forth, just pay your taxes. So, you know, tax assets, not income, uh, bring in a UBI, and uh, you'll solve a lot of the problems. So. Bring in a UBI, gosh, just, yeah, no, they. Uh, I can recall that speech, and didn't did it did it well, really he, set? Uh, well, he never got invited back, but um, you know, I, I looked at his stuff and I thought, well, he's not wrong. So we don't need all the you know the the, the privatisation of philanthropy. Uh, I mean, yeah, in the past, yeah, during the Renaissance and so forth, we had patrons and that kind of stuff for the arts. So uh, there could be a place for it. But if we just uh, there's so many people who are you know being able to hide hide their tax. Um, and, and organisations and you know trusts and so forth. If we just final have... final comment, Ian. Yes, well, I agree with that last comment, and that sort of refers back to what I said before. I, I do think a lot of our problems relate to the fact that people, especially at the lower end, are not earning enough to live. That the housing is inadequate. That health care isn't up, you know, isn't in some cases accessible to people. And obviously, at all, education is really important. And and if we continue to underfund all these things, um, then we'll end up with needing more programs, which will need more social investment to uh, lift ourselves out of that. I've seen in my lifetime, a, 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 you know, things degrade in a way that it, people are looking for food and all that sort of thing, because I believe we've reduced our social investment at the more public level. Ian, wonderful to have you on the program. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. Kia ora. That's Ian Hudson. He is the Director of the Social Policy and Parliamentary Unit, Salvation Army, and their view, his view, on uh, this proposition, uh, proposal of this social investment fund. That's what National... Uh, uh, putting up, saying that it'll help in identifying and funding social problems uh, that work. Uh, your road cone feedback to come, it's put in a separate file, there's so much of it. Um, but I really, look, I really appreciate and value your feedback this afternoon on uh, the panel. Uh, but um, this caught my eye. There's often an argument that if you make cigarettes illegal, the illegal trade of tobacco It'll take off. It'll explode. It's a fairly common argument and one that's used to 
preserve the status quo around taking ciggies out of places like dairies. Of course, the backdrop to all this is New Zealand's Parliament. They're considering a new smoke-free law to implement key components of the smoke-free Aotearoa 2025 action plan. That includes, amongst other things, a reduction of the number of tobacco retail outlets to help ensure this uh, smoke-free generation. So a recently published study looked at tobacco smuggling and what do they find. With us is Nick Wilson. He's a professor of public health at the University of Otago, one of the authors, authors, Professor Wilson. Kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. And there have been, haven't there, submissions to the Select Committee considering the legislation, and a biggie is that this would fuel illicit trade. What does the study say? Well, yes, to better understand the illicit market of tobacco, we actually did do a a study around the whole country where we collected littered cigarette packs, and we found 5% of these were foreign packs, which we are assuming were all smuggled because this was during the time of COVID and there were no foreign tourists coming into New Zealand and dropping their foreign packs. So this this 5% figure is actually very similar to uh, previous studies of listed packs that we've done over the last uh, 10 or so years. And so we're really questioning the tobacco industry's claims that smuggling is this massive problem uh, because each time the tobacco tax went up, the industry claimed smuggling would go out of control. And when plain packs came in, they'd say smuggling was going to go out of control. So we really think um, the politicians need to take with very large grain of salt uh, what what the tobacco industry is saying when they claim that any new smoke-free measures are going to uh, really blow out the smuggling problem. Okay, so you had a look in the study of one of the central tenets, one of the central claims here, but it just uh, it seems to be a truism, uh, Nick, that as tobacco excise tax increase, surely the temptation to trade in tobacco illicitly will also increase. Yes, that's a a sort of basic logic, but there's many other factors in the mix. For example, uh, New Zealand as an island nation has very good border control and the customs uh, capacity to pick up smuggled products uh, probably has been improving as well. Uh, And at the same time, some of the demand for tobacco is going down as as we have fewer smokers every year. So yeah. those uh, other factors in the mix, and it just seems like the smuggling problem doesn't seem to have got uh, uh, significantly worse than 10 years ago. Well, how interesting is this, Wade? Is the, yeah, the smoking might be going down, but does that include vaping? Because isn't the vaping on the increase? Uh, yeah, vaping, vaping has definitely gone up. And uh, uh, that's quite good from a harm reduction point of view. If people can't quit, they're getting much less harm from vaping, and vaping's also very much cheaper, so it's producing less financial harm. You wanted you to look convinced well, there. Well, there's, there's vaping with all the flavours and so forth that's bringing in younger people who wouldn't normally potentially pick up a cigarette. It's kind of like the old menthol, you know. It's kind of different flavours, I believe, the vaping makes it more... It uh, is a problem, and I think the problem. government does need to tackle this much more vigorously because... Uh, the industries producing these vaping products are selling, marketing them to young people as a sort of lifestyle product. Right. And they should really just be used for smokers to help them quit and to, um, if they can't give up nicotine, to you know, consume something which is less harmful. Sarah? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm watching that development as well with horror because um, I've got three teenagers and, and well two teenagers one's 21 now um and our whanau and um you know it's it's this insidious creep that you see on young ones now about the pressure to vape yes i do see that it's used as a transition substitute um but um you know there needs to be stronger regulation around vaping i believe it's just so accessible now right you mentioned professor wilson that people are far more likely to switch to vapes than to seek out their favourite fags on the black market? Uh, We haven't got hard data on that, but when uh, surveys have been done of smokers and uh, they're given the uh, uh, question of what what they're going to do when denicotinised tobacco comes in under this new law, they tend to say that they would either quit or uh, switch to uh, vaping. Uh, Because black market product is probably... You know, uh, uh, generally difficult to get. It's just some particular parts of the country, and uh, you know, it is illegal. So uh, you know, many people wouldn't want to uh, be part of that illegal activity. So uh, yeah, we we think this is this is a sort of a a small part of the problem, and that yeah. um, it, it's just something that the tobacco industry's latched onto to exaggerate. Now, uh, here's a, a bit of response on this. Uh, read tobacco. I had my first tailor-made cigarette when I was 17, now 42, smoking rollies. I'm a fully addicted chain smoker and believe that tobacco should be banned full stop and vaping should be pharmacy-only product. I'm currently smoking right now with a good old Chardonnay can't stop. I know that, Wade, you want to ask a question as well. While we have you here, Professor Wilson, can we just come back a little to vaping because... Whenever we talk about smoking, the issue of vaping does come up. And in my day, when I was at school in the 80s, it was the cigarettes cigarettes that people used to gravitate to. Now for kids, it seems, I don't see a cigarette. I see vapes. How do you view this issue, Professor Wilson? Well, uh it is a less harmful product, but it is also a big problem. We just don't want to see uh, a new generation getting addicted to nicotine. So I think the government, while it's uh, got some great ideas going ahead with smoke-free, it really has to tighten up on uh, access to vaping. I think it's just crazy that thousands of dairies and petrol stations uh, around the country can sell all these vaping right. products. And, and the, the people behind the dairy counter have no idea about giving advice on how to you know get the dose right with vaping and all that so that they can't give sensible advice like a pharmacist could for example on how to use vaping to quit so it is a ridiculous situation that the government allowed dairies and petrol stations just to sell these products wait I did 10 years as a clinical hypnotherapist and I had a lot of people who'd come to see me who wanted to quit um, smoking. And so, um, you know, people's reasons for smoking are so multifactorial, right? There's so many different reasons for it that could be bundled up. So it is, I mean, it's such an addictive substance. Anything that kind of takes out that lowers the, the, the nicotine and so forth. I think it's a positive thing. I think vaping is part of the solution, but definitely I, I'm, I'm in agreement. We need to do something to stop the, um, uh, the, the how accessible it is. Finally, before we go, one more question, Nick. Are you confident uh, where we're heading regarding smoke-free Aotearoa 2025? 
I'm pretty confident because behind the key measure in the proposal is removing nicotine from tobacco. And there's now many uh, trials that actually shows that that really does help uh, smokers uh, to quit. They just get no satisfaction from the denicotinized uh, tobacco. And so quit rates really should go up. And some other countries, in fact, the US is also looking at these type of measures. So Uh, I I think New Zealand could really be in a very good position with this new law. Very good to have you on the programme, Professor Wilson. Kia ora. Thanks for your time. That is uh, Nick Wilson, Professor of Public Health at uh, the University of Otago. Many years ago, smoked ciggies. Found it very hard to give up. Really hard. Quite the addiction, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. Actually, the first COVID mm. theatre we opened in early uh, 2001, we, um, we actually got funding from Smoke Free New Zealand to become a, a smoke free venue, which is before you had to be. And wow. People just, people, because I just don't respond well to it, but um, to smoking, but uh, people would comment then while other bars were all smoky, the theatre was smoke free. Um, That's early days. Very it's early, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was just great. People, yeah, so. Uh, you know, we've got to definitely help people who are and what um, what 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 made you decide to go smoke free that early? Um, because it just you know I before, uh, I used to be a dormant bouncer at a nightclub before that, and it was just, you know you'd come home you'd just reek of smoke oh. you know you hear your clothes remember the spin. days yeah so I just hated it and thought well if I can have have the choice I'd rather have a smoke free venue well. Back in the 90s, I used to be a long-haul flight attendant, and I used to work in the galley in a 767 and flying to Asia, and it was smoking, and I can tell you it was not pleasant yeah. being on galley duty, and you would smell like a cigarette when you got off the plane. Yes. Yeah. And I've never smoked. Yeah. The memories are just flooding back to me. <laughs> of You go out to a club, right? And yeah. yeah. In your clothes. Yeah. In your hair, you'd almost have a shower. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah, and it wasn't even that long ago. Like no. the play. I remember watching no. the original Mission Impossible during lockdown, and that's how Ethan Hunt gets rid of the message. Uh, he blows a cigarette. And I thought, what? That was what we were smoking with the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies still on planes. It was amazing. All right, Wade Jackson and uh, Sarah Sparks with me. Um, road cones are a sign of progress. They're a sign. That a city is getting things done. Don't laugh, Wade. Um, <laughs> you're just trying to you're trying to stop yourself, aren't you? Anyway, that's what our um, Simon Wilson came on the show. He said that. That's what he said. My goodness gracious me! The feedback. The feedback. Wallace, road cones represent one thing to me: bureaucracy. Um, road cones are an indication that someone will prune a shrub along the street Tuesday next week. <laughs> <laughs> These are my people. They are they are completely out of control. Needless to say, you just absolutely did not agree with um, Simon Wilson uh, on this. And with us now is Amber. Amber, lovely to have you on the program. Kia ora, Wallace and panel. Now, Kia ora. where do you live? Uh, I live at Karikari in Auckland, West Coast. Tell us your horror story. Well, um, we had a massive storm in April 2018 uh, and a big section of one of our banks slipped away and the council came and put some cones up and um, have repeatedly put cones up because they just fall down the bank. And (laughs) when we were in lockdown the first time round for want of something to do, my daughter and I, who was uh, 11 at the time, went down and hauled them up the bank using a rope 
and counted up 27 road cones. And they came and picked those up. They left them tidily by the side of the road for the contractors to come and get. And then they uh, still, you know, they've been repetitively doing that for another two years. And so there's a whole ton more down the bank and they just come out every day and replace them every day. How many, no years, work has been how done. many years has it been? Four and a half. Oh, <laughs> hang on. Yeah, We're you, shocked. They're, 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 they're I, procreating. Yeah. They're procreating. <laughs> they are, they're like rabbits. They're an eyesore. <laughs> they are an environmental hazard. They are completely ugly, and they are absolutely a symbol of lack of progress, as far as I'm concerned. Boom. Yeah, no. Wow. Uh, I think you've got to do, if, if Mayor Brown wants to stop the road cones, he's got to do what Stephen King did, the horror writer. He went round and collected them, and his, I think he got arrested or pulled over by a cop because he had all these road cones in the back of his station wagon. So just do like the old bottles, you know, 50 cents for a road cone or a dollar for a exactly. road cone. Exactly. You, you must be, okay, four years, tw- road cones, they go down the bank and they just stay there. You must be at the end of your tether. I am furious. I'm sick of it. It's just completely ridiculous and absurd and a waste of money getting the contractors to come out and just keep replacing them on the side of the road. Apparently it's a um, health and safety issue. When I called council to say, hey, come and get your road cones, the woman on the phone said, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. That's terribly dangerous. And uh, I thought, well, no one else is doing it. So, If if Wayne Brown is listing this afternoon, what would you, Amber, say (laughs) to the new mayor? Uh, I'd say please take the wrong codes away. If you're not actually going to do anything to fix the roads, then just stop telling people to come and be on the roads and just get the work done. Amber, kia ora. Great to have you on the programme. Uh, really appreciate it there. Well, well, well. How about that? You've been wonderful this afternoon. Thank you so much. Sarah Sparks, Wade Jackson, kia ora. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. I'm Wallace Chapman. Tomorrow... 3.45, it's Power Battle Friday. Friday afternoon, it's going to rock and roll. Checkpoint with Rowan Quinn is next. Big thanks to Charlie Dreve, my producer. See you tomorrow.